Chapter 11 of The Castaways of the Flag. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Kuklowitz. The Castaways of the Flag by Jules Verne. Chapter 11 by Well-Known Ways. The cave in which Mr. Wollstone, Ernest and Jack had spent the night four months before, on the day before the English flag was planted at the summit of Jeansamat Peak, was that evening full of happiness. If no one enjoyed a tranquil sleep, sleeplessness was not due to bad dreams, but to the excitement of the recent happenings. After their prayer of thanksgiving, they had all declined to delay a minute longer at the summit of the peak. Not for two hours would day yield to night, and that time would be long enough for them to reach the foot of the range. "'It would be very strange,' Fritz remarked, "'if we could not find some cave large enough to shelter us all.' "'Besides,' Frank answered, "'we shall be lying under the trees, under the trees of New Switzerland.' new switzerland he could not refrain from saying the dear name over and over again the name that was blessed by all speak it again dolly dear he exclaimed say it again that i may hear it once more new switzerland laughed the girl her eyes shining with happiness new switzerland jenny repeated holding fritz's hand in her own and there was not one of them not even bob who did not echo it. "'Well, good people,' said Captain Harry Gould, "'if we have made up our minds to go down to the foot of the mountain, we have no time to lose.' "'What about eating?' John Block inquired. "'And how are we to get food on the way?' "'In forty-eight hours we shall be at Rock Castle,' Frank declared. "'Besides,' Fritz said, isn't there any quantity of game on the plains of New Switzerland? And how are you going to hunt it without guns? Captain Gould inquired. Clever as Fritz and Frank are, I hardly imagine that merely by pointing a stick. Pooh! Fritz answered. Haven't we got legs? You'll see, Captain. Before midday tomorrow we shall have real meat instead of that turtle stuff. "'We must not abuse the turtles, Fritz,' said Jenny, "'if only out of gratitude.' "'You are quite right, wife, but let us be off. "'Bob doesn't want to stay here any longer, do you, Bob?' "'No, no,' the child replied. "'Not if Papa and Mamma are coming too.' "'And to think,' said the boatswain slyly, "'to think that down there in the south "'we have got a beautiful beach where turtles and mussels swarm.' and a beautiful cave where there are provisions for several weeks, and in that cave a beautiful bed of seaweed, and we are going to leave all that for... We will come back for our treasures by and by, Fritz promised. But still, John Block persisted. Oh, shut up, you wretched fellow, Captain Gould ordered, laughing. I'll shut up, Captain. There are only two words more I should like to say. What are they? Cut away. As usual, Fritz took the lead. They descended the cone without any difficulty and reached the foot of the range. Some 
happy instinct, a genuine sense of direction, had led them to take the same path as Mr. Walston, Ernest, and Jack had taken. And it was barely eight o'clock when they reached the edge of the vast pine forest, and, by a no less happy chance, there seemed nothing surprising in it, for they had entered upon the season of happy chances, the boatswain found the cave in which Mr. Walston and the two brothers had taken shelter. It was rather small, but large enough for Jenny and Dolly and Susan and little Bob. The men could sleep in the open air. They could tell, from the white ashes of a fire, that the cave had been occupied before. Perhaps all the members of the two families had crossed this forest and climbed the peak on which the British flag was waving. After supper, when Bob had fallen asleep in a corner of the cave, they talked long, notwithstanding all the fatigue of the day, and the talk turned upon the flag. During the week that they had been held prisoners, the ship must have sailed northwards. The only explanation of that could be the persistence of contrary winds, for it was manifestly to the interest of Robert Burrupt and the crew to reach the far waters of the Pacific. If they had not done so, it was because the weather had prevented them. Everything now went to show that the flag had been driven towards the Indian Ocean, into the proximity of New Switzerland. Reckoning the time that had passed and the course that had been followed since the boat had been cast adrift, the incontestable conclusion followed that on that day Harry Gould and his companions could not have been much more than a couple of hundred miles from the desired island, though they had imagined themselves separated from it by a thousand or more. The boat had touched land on the southern coast, which Fritz and Frank did not know at all, the other side of the mountain range, which they had seen for the first time when they came out into the Green Valley. Who could have dreamed that there could be such an amazing difference in the nature of the soil and its products between the rich country to the north of the range and the arid plateau which extended from the peak to the sea? Now they could understand the arrival of the albatross on the other side of the cliff. After Jenny Montrose's departure, the bird had probably returned to Burning Rock, whence it flew sometimes to the shore of New Switzerland, though it had never gone either to Falconhurst or Rock Castle. What a big part the faithful bird had played in their salvation. It was to him that they owed the discovery of that second cavern, into which little Bob had followed him, and, as a consequence, the finding of the passage which came out on the top of the cliff. The conversation lasted far into the night, but at last fatigue overcame them, and they slept but at early dawn they took some food and set out again in high spirits. Beside the traces of fire in the cave, the little band encountered other signs in the forest and the open country. The trampled grass and broken branches were caused by the constant movement of animals, ruminants or beasts of prey, but it was impossible to be under any misapprehension when they came upon the traces of encampments. Besides, Fritz pointed out, who but our own people could have planted the flag on the summit of that peak? Unless it went and planted itself there, the boatswain replied with a laugh, which would not be a surprising thing for an English flag to do, Fritz replied cheerfully. There are quite a lot of places where it would seem to have grown by itself. Led by Fritz, the party descended the first slopes of the range, which were partly covered by the forest. 
great obstacles to overcome or serious risks to be incurred seemed unlikely on the way from the range to the promised land. The distance between the two points might be estimated at twenty miles. If they did ten miles a day, with a halt for two hours at midday, and slept one night on the way, they could reach the defile of clues in the evening of the following day. From the defile to Rock Castle, or to Falconhurst, would be a matter of a few hours only. <sighs> ah, said Frank, if we only had our two good buffaloes, Storm and Grumbler, or Fritz's Onager, or Whirlwind, Jack's Ostrich, it would only take us one day to get to Rock Castle. I am sure that Frank forgot to post the letter we wrote, asking them to send the animals to us, Jenny answered merrily. What, Frank, did you forget? asked Fritz, a thoughtful, attentive fellow like you. No, said Frank, it was Jenny who forgot to tie a note to her albatross's leg before he th flew off. How thoughtless of me, the young woman exclaimed. But it is not certain the postman would have taken the letter to the right address, Dolly said. Who knows, Frank replied. Everything that is happening now is so extraordinary. Well, said Captain Gould, since we can't count upon Storm or Grumbler or Whirlwind or the Onager, the best thing we can do is trust to our own legs. And to step lively, John Block added. They started with the firm intention only to halt at midday. From time to time, James and Frank and the boatswain carried Bob, although the child wanted to walk. So they lost no time crossing the forest. James and Susan Walston, who knew nothing of the marvels of New Switzerland, were filled with constant admiration of the luxuriant vegetation, which is far finer than that of Cape Colony. And yet, they were only in the part of the island which was left to itself, and had never been touched by the hand of man. What would it be like when they came to the cultivated portion of the district, to the farms at Eberfurt, Sugarcane Grove, Woodgrange and Prospect Hill, the rich territory of the promised land? Game abounded everywhere. Agoutis, peccaries, caveys, antelopes and rabbits, besides bustards, partridges, grouse, hazel hens, guinea fowls and ducks. Fritz and Frank had good reason to regret not having their sporting guns with them. The caveys and peccaries and agoutis would not let anyone come near them, and it seemed likely that they would be reduced to finishing what was left of their provisions for the next meal. But then the question of food was resolved by a stroke of luck. About eleven o'clock, Fritz, walking in front, made a sign for everyone to stop at the edge of a little clearing crossed by a narrow stream, on the bank of which an animal was quenching its thirst. It was an antelope, and it meant wholesome and refreshing meat if only they could contrive to capture it somehow. The simplest plan seemed to be to make a ring around the clearing without allowing themselves to be seen, and directly the antelope attempted to break out, to stop its way, regardless of danger from its horns, overpower and kill it. The difficulty was to carry through this operation without alarming the animal, whose sight is so keen, hearing so sharp, and scent so delicate. While Jenny and Susan and Dolly and Bob halted behind a bush, 
Fritz, Frank, James, Captain Gould and the boatswain, armed only with their pocket knives, began to work round the clearing, keeping well under cover in the thickets. The antelope went on drinking at the stream, showing no signs of uneasiness, until Fritz got up sharply and uttered a loud shout. At once the animal sprang up, stretched out its neck, and jumped towards the break, which it could have cleared in a single leap. It made for the side where Frank and John Block were standing, each with knife in hand. The beast sprang, but took off badly, fell back, bowled the boatswain over, and struggled to rise. Then up came Fritz, and, throwing himself upon the animal, succeeded in driving his knife into its flank. But this one blow would not have been sufficient if Captain Gould had not succeeded in cutting its throat. The animal lay motionless among the branches, and the boatswain got up nimbly. "'Confounded brute!' exclaimed John Block, who had escaped with a few bruises. "'I've shipped more than one heavy sea in my time, but never been bowled over like that.' "'I hope you are not much hurt, Block?' Captain Gould asked. "'No, only scratched, and that don't matter, Captain. What annoys me is to have been turned upside down like that.' "'Well, to make up for it, we will keep the best bit for you,' Jenny answered. "'No, Mrs. Freds, no, no. I would rather have the bit that pitched me to the ground. That was its head. I want the animal's head.' They set to work to cut up the antelope and take out the edible parts. Since they were now assured of food to last them until the evening of the following day, there would be no need for them to trouble further about it before they got to the defile of clues. Fritz and Frank were no novices where the preparation of game was concerned. Had they not studied it in theory and in practice in twelve years, hunting among the grasslands and woods of the promised land? Nor was the boatswain clumsy over the job. He seemed to derive real revengeful pleasure in skinning the animal. Within a quarter of an hour, the haunches, cutlets, and other savoury portions were ready to be grilled over the embers. As it was nearly noon, it seemed best to camp in the clearing, where the stream would furnish clear, fresh water. Captain Gould and James lighted a wood fire at the foot of a mangrove. Then Fritz placed the best bits of the antelope over the glowing embers, and left Susan and Holly to superintend the cooking. By a lucky chance, Jenny had just found a quantity of roots such as can be roasted in the ashes, they were of a kind to satisfy hungry stomachs, and would agreeably complete the bill of fare for luncheon. No flesh is more delicate than that of the antelope, which is both fragrant and tender, and everybody agreed that this was a real treat. "'How good it is!' John Block exclaimed. "'To eat real meat which has walked in its lifetime, and not crawled clumsily over the ground!' "'We won't cry down turtles,' Captain Gould replied, "'not even to sing the praises of antelope.' "'The captain is right,' said Jenny. "'Without those excellent creatures, "'which have fed us ever since we got to the island, "'what would have become of us?' "'Then here's luck to turtles,' cried the boatswain. "'But give me another chop.' "'When this refreshing meal was finished, "'they set out once more.' They had no time to lose if the afternoon stage was to complete the ten miles planned for the day. 
If Fritz and Frank had been alone, they would have paid no heed to fatigue. They would have marched all night and made a single stage of the whole journey to the defile. They may have had the idea now, and it was certainly very tempting, for they could have got to Rock Castle in the afternoon of the following day. But they did not venture to suggest going on ahead. Besides, think of the happiness of all arriving together at their much-desired goal, to throw themselves into the arms of the relations and friends who had been waiting so long for them, who might have lost all hope of ever seeing them again. The second stage was done under the same conditions as the first, in order to husband the strength of Jenny and Dolly and Susan Wollstone. No incident occurred, and about four o'clock in the afternoon the edge of the forest was reached. A fertile champagne extended beyond. Its vegetation was entirely due to the productivity of the soil, verdant grasslands and woods or clumps of trees studding the country right up to the entrance to the green valley. A few herds of stags and deer passed in the distance, but there was no question of hunting them. Numerous flocks of ostriches were also seen, reminding Fritz and Frank of their expedition to the country near the Arabian Watchtower. Several elephants appeared as well. They moved quietly through the thick woods, and one could imagine the longing eyes with which Jack would have regarded them if he had been there. While we have been away, Fritz said, Jack may have succeeded in capturing an elephant and taming and training it, as we did Storm and Grumbler and Lightfoot. It's quite possible, dear, Jenny answered. After fourteen months' absence, we must expect to find something new in New Switzerland. Our second fatherland, Frank said. I'm already picturing other houses there, Holly exclaimed, and other farms, perhaps a village even. Well, said the boatswain, I could be quite content with what we see about us, and I can't imagine anything better in your island than we have here. It is nothing compared with the promised land, Mr. Block, Dolly declared. Nothing, Jenny agreed. Mr. Matt gave it that Bible name because it deserved it, and we, more blessed than the children of Israel, are about to set foot in the land of Canaan. And John Block admitted they were right. At six o'clock they stopped for the night. There was little likelihood of change in the weather at this season, and the cold was not formidable. Indeed, they had suffered rather from heat during the day, in spite of the fact that they were in the shelter of the trees during the hottest hours. After that, a few isolated woods and copses had enabled them to walk in the shade without wandering too far from the direct route. Supper was prepared, as the earlier meal had been, before a crackling fire of dry wood. This night would not be spent within a cave, but, with fatigue to rock them, not one of them lay awake. As a matter of precaution, however, Fritz and Frank and the boatswain decided to keep alternate watch. When darkness fell, roaring could be heard in the far distance. There were wild beasts in this part of the island. Next morning a start was made at daybreak. They hoped to get through the defile of clues in the second stage of the journey, if they met with no obstacles on the way. There were no more hardships about the march today than there had been the day before. They went from wood to wood, so to speak, avoiding as much as possible the rays of the sun. After the midday meal, 
taken by the side of a fast-running river twenty to thirty yards in width, flowing towards the north, they merely had to go along the left bank. Neither Fritz nor Frank knew this river, since their expeditions had never brought them into the heart of the island. They had no idea that it had already received a name, that it was called the Montrose, as they had no knowledge of the new name of Jean Zermatt Peak, on whose summit the British flag was floating. What a pleasure it would be to Jenny to learn that this river bore the name of her family. After marching for an hour, they left the Montrose, which bore off sharply to the east. Two hours later, Fritz and Frank, who had taken the lead, set foot at length on country known to them. "'The Green Valley!' they shouted, and saluted it with a cheer. It was the Green Valley, and now they only had to get to the rampart enclosing the Promised Land to be at the defile of clues. This time, no consideration, no hunger or fatigue could have availed to hold back any of them. Following Fritz and Frank, they all hurried forwards, although the path was steep. They seemed to be impelled forcibly towards the goal, which they had despaired of ever attaining. Oh, if only by some extraordinary good luck, Monsieur Zermatt and Mr. Woolston might be at the Hermitage at Eberfurt, and their families with them, as the custom was during the summer season. But that would have been too good to be true, as people say. Not even John Block dared to hope for it. The beams across the entrance were all in place, fixed firmly between interstices among the rocks so as to resist the efforts of even the most powerful animals. "'That is our door,' Fritz cried. "'Yes!' said Jenny. "'The door into the promised land where all our dear ones live!' They only had to remove one of the beams, a task which took but a few minutes, and then, at last, they were through the defile, and all had the feeling that they were entering their own home, home which, only three days ago, they had supposed to be hundreds and hundreds of miles away. Fritz and Frank and John Block replaced the beam in its proper grooves so as to bar the way against wild beasts and pachyderms. About half-past seven, night was falling, with the suddenness peculiar to the tropics, when Fritz and his companions reached the hermitage at Eberford. Nobody was at the farm, and, although they regretted this, there was no occasion for them to be surprised. The little villa was in perfect order. They opened all the doors and windows, and proceeded to make themselves comfortable for the ten hours or so they would stay. In accordance with Monsieur Zermatt's practice, the house was quite ready for the reception of the two families, who visited it several times in the course of the year. The bedsteads were given to Jenny and Dolly, Susan and little Bob, and to Captain Gould. Dry grass spread on the floor of the outhouse would be good enough for the others this last night before their return home. Moreover, Eberford was always provided with stores to last a week. So Jenny only had the trouble of opening large wicker hampers to find preserves of various kinds, sago, cassava, or tapioca flour, and salted meat and fish. As for fruit, figs, mangoes, bananas, pears, and apples, they only had to take a step to pick them from the trees, and only another to gather vegetables in the kitchen garden. Of course, the kitchen and larder were properly equipped with all necessary utensils. 
Directly a good wood fire was crackling in the stove. The pot was set upon its tripod. Water was drawn from an offshoot of the eastern river, which supplied the reservoir belonging to the farm, and it was with special pleasure that Fritz and Frank were able to offer their guests glasses of palm wine drawn from the barrels in the cellar. Aha! cried the boatswain. We've been teetotalers a very long time. Well, we will pledge you now, good old block, Fritz exclaimed. As much as you like, the boatswain answered. Nothing could be more pleasant than drinking one another's health in this excellent wine. Let us drink then, said Frank, to the happiness of seeing our parents and our friends again at Falconhurst or Rockcastle. And, clinking glasses, they gave three cheers for the Zermatts and the Wolstons. Seriously, John Block remarked, there are plenty of inns in England and elsewhere which aren't nearly so good as this hermitage of Everford. Moreover, Block, Fritz answered, here the entertainment is free. When supper was finished, all sought the repose of which they had such need after their long day's march. Every one of them slept until the sun rose next morning. End of chapter 11 Recording by Sarah Kuklowitz